I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Ghostbusters Afterlife. You're a great mom. I don't know. I'm fine with Trevor. But with Phoebe, she really keeps me on the outside. That's normal. She's an awkward, nerdy kid. Maybe a new home can be an opportunity to start fresh. I just wish she'd get into some trouble. There's still time. What are you doing here in Somerville, anyway? We're completely broke. And our grandfather left us this creepy old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Your father wasn't much of a homemaker. He could hardly keep the power on. You're saying he left us nothing? Well, I wouldn't say nothing. You went with the station wagon? It's the only one that had an engine. What is happening here? Somehow, a town with no fault lines is shaking on a daily basis. Maybe it's the apocalypse. Egon came out here for a reason. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? You experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? Oh my god. You guys hear that? Something's coming. The whole city took the walking dead. Back in 2013, we recorded two shows on the original pair of Ghostbusters movies with tonight's special guest, Taylor Nova of Game Burst. Hello, Taylor. Hello. Really? 2013? Nine years ago. And it's kind of perfect that we reconvene for this continuation and perhaps the culmination of that particular chronology. Editor's note, since time of recording, it's been revealed that this thing's continuing. We don't know for how long or in what capacity, but we shall see. When Harold Ramis died, shortly after those episodes were recorded back in 2014, the negotiations at uh, Columbia, TriStar, and Sony for a Ghostbusters 3, which had been on and off the table for 25 years because Dan Aykroyd always has plans, and they, they're very expensive plans, <laughs> they, they were taken off the table because there was, uh, they were put to an end. There was no way of doing a reunion film without Harold. Which leaves, interestingly, because we mentioned it before, the 2009 cinematic video game on Xbox 360 and PS3, later remastered for contemporary systems, as, let's face it, the closest to a true Ghostbusters 3. Hey, it's the new cadet! Welcome aboard! This might be a little dangerous. Great. 
Danger is our life. We'll start at 50% capacity. That should keep any burning or tissue damage to a minimum. Hey, if you're gonna burn any tissue, do it to the new kid. You can't use Ray. Our mortgage is in his name. And in 2016, a whole new team of Ghostbusters was introduced and immediately loudly rejected. Uh, we did a show with uh, Bob Chipman at that point. And if you, dear listener, did not like the 2016 Ghostbusters, that is fine. Or indeed this one. Neither were massively popular. We trust you not to be obnoxious about it. And it's this podcast that's going to be unusual because we came out on the positive side on both of them. There is a tendency now to opine polarizing hot takes on Ghostbusters. A bunch of man babies who shat their britches over women being allowed to play with what they perceived to be their toys... Them being colossal assholes about it and harassing the stars, especially Leslie Jones, doesn't change the fact that the film, as we said in 2016, was a bit of a mess, with seemingly far too many plot threads begun and dropped and an uneven tone. That said, the extended cut, which most of you won't have been able to see, is great fun. It doesn't change the movie drastically. It certainly doesn't it, it, it doesn't explain why they warp back to New York in the 70s for some reason. Um, yeah. Again, that's a drop plot thread. Oh, unless, do you know, Taylor? No, I didn't. I didn't. I haven't seen the extended cut. Oh, right. Again, like oh, no. you, I find that film, it was actually the first film I, I showed, first Ghostbusters film I showed my son because I didn't find it, it wasn't, it's one I knew he wouldn't be too scared of. Yeah. Although, some of the comedic jokes are way too old for that film um honestly i think the extended cut has some really quite scary bits in it the bit where abby gets possessed there is this really much longer take where she's in the bathroom and ectoplasm starts spewing out of her nose and it's not really done for laughs it's like she's panicking as this horrible um man child starts to sort of take over her mind and body and so there's actually some scarier bits in there but the extended edition does some special things with the effects that I have never seen done before. I won't spoil it. I think I've mentioned it before, but I'm not going to spoil it for here. I'm going to make that homework for folks who want to kind of plumb the depths of Ghostbusters. Check out this extended cut of uh, Ghostbusters Answer the Call. We watched this just a few days after we saw Afterlife, and it made us laugh uh, the whole way through. Like, we were lo- especially at Chris Hemsworth, who is fucking hilarious. Oh, really? And- yeah, yeah, we, we found Chris Hemsworth really, really funny, and um, Kate McKinnon as well. Yeah, oh, Kate McKinnon owns that movie. She is the most memorable mm. character to me in that movie. <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's an acquired taste, but I found uh, his uh, himbo, his uh, extremely, like, you know, affable hunk. Uh, that, he, uh, no, he was beyond himbo. He was too stupid to live. <laughs> I do that, get what you mean by too stupid to live. It's like, how do you get up in the morning and not, like, Bre- fall Bre- into Bre- the Frazier road? in George of the Jungle or any of his early movies hmm. is himbo. Well, I mean, great. he's also very lucky. Like, he asked for a sandwich, and a sandwich is thrown to him. So he's an example of those, <laughs> yeah, those people who just sort of get along uh, with their lives and are just fine. Uh, he's, he's like Poe at the end of Kung Fu Panda. He just kind of bounces around through life I'm, and uh, relaxes. When he, he's, he's being the villainy is actually quite enjoyable there as well, actually. Yeah, he has some fun with that. And uh, my God, can he dance as well? Anyway, yes. we have subsequently seen the moron himbo version of Chris Hemsworth wear out his welcome in Love and Thunder. So jury's still out on whether Kevin will still be rib tickling. Would it be okay if I bring my cat to work sometimes? Uh, he has major anxiety problems. You know what? I, I would love to let your cat live here with you, but I have a pretty severe cat allergy. Oh, I don't have a cat. He's a dog. His name's my cat. Your, your dog's name is my cat? And Mike Hat. Your dog's name is Mike. 
Last name Hat. Well, his full name is Michael Hat. I can't say that I'm allergic to dogs, so... Yeah, that's right. He lives with my mum. Ghostbusters 2016 answered the call. Is it a bit odd? It is not a big crowd pleaser like the original one definitely was. But the opposing view is the article that tells us that the Emperor has his knob out, that it transpires that the 1984 original Ghostbusters is not, in fact, a great film. It is troublesome and creepy, and why does Venkman have Thorazine in his bag when he's going to visit Dana? Willow asked that earlier today. And uh, it was never good. Sometimes this feels like a stab at those man-babies, but sometimes it just feels like wandering into a football match and shouting at the top of your voice, Oh, he's kicked a bit of leather near some go posts you do realize all football is shit right and some footballers cheat on or beat their wives so and then you just walk away leaving everyone else staring at you for perspective which is always something we prize it is important to note that the first film was a legitimate phenomenon causing a pre-internet cultural kerfuffle that would before the end of the decade be repeated with turtle mania but ghostbusters caught the adults too Let's talk numbers, because I, I like to do that just as a sort of a gauge of, of what kind... Not necessarily how much it's been taken to the heart of people. For example, Avatar. Whenever you ask people about Avatar, they go, Oh, I haven't seen it in years, and they don't seem to care. So it's not just about numbers. But let's just talk about numbers when it comes to Ghostbusters films. The original netted $295 million in 1984 money. And that was on a $30 million budget. That is, I checked the inflation, $800 million by today's standards on an $80 million adjusted budget. That's astonishing. That's a times 10 multiplier. That's something that Marvel would be happy with. Oh my God, they'd be so happy. There'd be so many Ghostbusters uh, like sequels and spin-offs planned. And, and to be fair... That's the movie. Mm. We didn't, you're not even touching on the merchandise. Oh, yeah. Merchandising. Where the real money from the movie is made. We it's still have true. to do space vaults. <laughs> so fast forward five years, jumping over the real Ghostbusters, and we get our first confirmation that this bolt of lightning cannot seem to strike twice. Ghostbusters 2 cost roughly the same as the original, and it made $215 million, which is quite a lot less than the original. It's still pretty good. But that, yeah. crucially, released a week before Tim Burton's Batman, which snagged $411 million worth of bums on seats. So, like, after the first week, people were going, Ghostbusters 2, it's all right, but have you seen Batman? That was going to be the one people were going to go see. And by the way, I said this about Matrix uh, Resurrections. I was like, you can't launch it a week after Spider-Man. And it was like, well, it was agreed by HBO, and they can't move the date. Okay, so The Matrix 4 is going to tank at the box office. <clears throat> but the turtles were now the new hotness in uh, 1989 and if you remember I was saying like that they show how out of touch they are by having the kids at the party chant for He-Man who himself had been out of uh, not de rigueur for quite a while the kids would have been crying out for Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello and Michelangelo the cartoon was on the out because the kids wanted turtles. They had grown beyond the Ghostbusters and the sequel didn't get their younger siblings on board, nor did it thrill adults en masse. Jump all the way forward to 2016 and the ladies of Answer the Call managed only $229 million on a $144 million budget. They made less than Hidden Figures in 2016. Sully, Miracle on the Hudson. You know that film? 
It's all about how um, Tom Hanks... He landed a plane. Yeah, he lands a plane. It's a true story. And he totally landed that plane. And Resident Evil 6. It made less than Resident Evil 6. Imagine those things are an anomaly. I would also probably... I would imagine that Resident Evil 6 cost less as well. You know, those things look cheap as shit. Um, It made a bit more... For perspective, than Bridget Jones's baby, and that year, Captain America: Civil War, the one at the top, made 1.1 billion dollars. Even Suicide Squad made three times what the Girl Ghostbusters could, and Suicide Squad had the worst dregs of the DC fan base to dissuade ordinary decent people from taking part. So you can't even say, "Well, the Ghostbusters fans were so toxic they chased everyone away." If people want to go see a movie, nothing's going to stop them. Five years later, after many delays due to the pandemic, Afterlife leapfrogged over the reboot make of The Girls to arrive in cinemas in late 2021 to almost no fanfare. The intention was clearly to reduce and reduce and reduce the budget to, in the end, half its 2016 instalment, costing $75 million, which is so modest that it barely registers as a big-ticket film. And it made $197 million back. Now, you could say, well, it was the pandemic and nothing made money. And you'd be right. Afterlife actually beat out Space Jam 2, The Suicide Squad, the The Suicide Squad, which is way better than the first one, even though I don't love it. Raya and the Last Dragon, The King's Man, Mortal Kombat, In the Heights, West Side Story, and The Matrix Resurrections. It was the 22nd highest grossing film of 2021, and five of those were from the growing list of big Asian-made successes, and I'll warrant most people haven't heard of those. But they're mad for them in China. But barely anybody talked about Ghostbusters Afterlife. We were just, it was like a ghost town. (laughs) I didn't write that down. It was like a fucking tumbleweeds. Just it was like, hey, did anyone see it? Did anyone like it? Mm, I don't know. I'm staying away. We didn't do a show on release because this film has quite a bit that we could spoil, and we wanted folks to at least have the chance of being familiar with proceedings. But while it's a very recognisable and iconic IP, and I'm sure there will be more media made in association with the Ghostbusters, definitely more comics, it is clear that this is more of a niche interest film event. Nothing like as ubiquitous and widely beloved as, say, Star Wars. This, is, this was their low-key Force Awakens. And plenty of folks decided that it just wasn't worth the risk that Spider-Man or the Fast and the Furious or James Bond clearly were. Much like The Terminator, this series is a victim of trying to replicate the successes of the hallowed original by laying out a similar setup and structure dotted throughout with references and callbacks to the one that everybody knows. Only Terminator Salvation doesn't conform to this, and far from being praiseworthy for its originality, McGee's non-effort plays out like a dismal Transformers knockoff with angry Johnny Batman Connor shouting his way through it. Given the reins of a brand new Ghostbusters film, I would have gone in many of the same directions. One, leave Manhattan. Two, go with a Lego sequel. Three, acknowledge Egon's absence from the world. Four, make it a bunch of fresh-faced kids who pick up the Ghostbusting torch. Five, keep the old men to a minimum and make it clear that they are saying goodbye. So a lot of this movie was reassuring and touching to watch. It made me laugh 
a bit the first time, a lot more the second, and more again the third. So it's definitely a grower. So if you see it and you're like, nah, I didn't really feel it all that much, maybe Ghostbusters 2016 and Afterlife are growers. And I, I definitely liked uh, Ghostbusters 2 the more I saw it. However, it is also underachieving and messy at times, with some decisions from director Jason Reitman, who helmed Juno, and is the son of Ivan Reitman, who shot the first two Busters, Jason appeared as a little shit in Ghostbusters 2, by the way. He was the, the guy who was like, why don't, why don't we all sit down and we'll have fun? Yeah! You know, my dad said you guys are full of crap. Jason, Well, some gosh. people have trouble believing in the paranormal. No, he just says you guys are full of crap and that's why you went out of business. But in real life, he is proud to be the first Ghostbusters fan. And he was in script collaboration with Gil Keenan, who directed Monster House and the Forgotten Poltergeist remake. And this movie had leveled at it immediately that it was weighed down with fan service, far too reverent to the original. And there is definitely some truth in that. It most definitely requires you to care about the original, which technically... The Force Awakens doesn't. It functions really, really well as a first-time Star Wars film. In fact, I'd say better than Star Wars. A few weeks ago, at the time of recording, Ivan Reitman also passed away, lending additional poignancy to this love letter from son to father. And that fired up our proton packs. It was time for us to talk about this one, and we knew who we were going to call. And Taylor answered. So let's get to it. Before we start on all the good stuff, let me get to just one of my biggest issues, uh, which also, from the sounds of it, Taylor shares, which is the twin journeys of both of Egon Spengler's grandchildren, who is who are who we follow. They go from the comfortable home; uh, they're not especially comfortable, but they kind of that's where their their comfort zone is in the urban center of Chicago, to the family-owned dirt farm in rural Somerville, Oklahoma when it transpires that Egon has died. Clearly brilliant, and clearly on the spectrum, Phoebe, played by gifted star McKenna Grace, immediately starts investigating the mysterious secrets afoot in this strange town, just like Dipper the moment he turns up in Gravity Falls. However, unlike Dipper's irrepressible sister Mabel, Finn Wolfhard's gangly teen Trevor immediately starts pursuing a very humdrum courtship with a pleasant but unexceptional waitress named Lucky, who works at the local Dairy Queen. That takes up the majority of his screen time. Distracted from all the ghostbusting and intrigue, and the only real payoff is that the two slightly older teens are available to help a bit for the final sequences and, and kind of like, you know, you need someone to be able to drive Ecto-1 and, and McKenna Grace can barely see over the steering wheel. I put it to you all, who have definitely seen all of one of the best animated shows ever made, Gravity, Gravity Falls, Falls, that this makes Trevor not Mabel, not Wendy, not Seuss, not even Robbie. He's Tambry, the teenage girl who's only interested in her phone. He even defines himself at the beginning by going, ah, not even one bar, as he's trying to, you know, get talking to his phone. And his mom makes a joke, there better be a bar. Tumbleweeds. He's boring. Whoa! 
Did your whole thing suddenly get a lot more likable? You don't seem as needy as I used to think you were. Hey, you wouldn't want to maybe get out of here and, I don't know, go kiss in public a lot? For some reason, I do. Status update. You know what? Forget it. Maybe I should stare at something other than my phone for a while. And while there could have been some meaty drama along the lines of desperation at being dragged out here into the middle of nowhere, parallel with that of, say, Jaden Smith in Kar the remake of Karate Kid, leading to Trevor renovating the dilapid Ecto-1 Cadillac, not just for something to do, but planning an escape and an acquisition of adulthood for a troubled kid. This, this was rich drama that they left on the table. Instead, he's just kind of there sometimes. And he was in Stranger Things and It, and he was fabulous in both of those. It's almost as though they didn't expect him to get the lead in this film. Like, they didn't know, they, can we get Finn Wolfhard for this character? And, you know, it's it's teens versus strange and funny horror, and he, he would lend it a success cachet. And they kind of forgot to write his character, crucial involvement in the story, and key characterization. So Yeah, they kind of really dropped the ball with that particular character. Trevor is wasted. Finn, mm. Finn Wolf is wasted yeah. because he's given a role that should have a lot to it and either it's on the cutting room floor or they didn't expect him to take the role or something. They were expecting a small act or and yeah, mm. it's it's wasted and it's really, really irritating because Phoebe is given so much. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, you could kind of incorporate elements of what Trevor's feeling into Phoebe if you're not going to do anything with Trevor. Or I, I wouldn't want to remove anything from Phoebe's story because like hers is actually played really well. And there's some great drama with her, her and her mother that they need to approach the world differently, which creates interpersonal, interfamilial drama, which this, this whole thing is a family drama. Why aren't you doing that? Yeah, it really does need to be there because... Hmm. He's like you said. He kind of just turns up to drive the car. Mm. Oh, and have the last minute brainwave of oh no, I need to shoot the capacitor, not the ghost. Yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, um, you know that thing about you know could this woman's role in a film be uh, fulfilled by a sexy lamp? His role in the film, uh, I think you you said ah, but you see they're going to the mine, and that 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 means that they know about the mine, and it's like yeah, but we can establish the same thing at the mine with just a camera being there. Like, the kids don't need to know about that. They can and, find out for, about it from a book. And podcast takes Phoebe there anyway. Yeah, podcast knows his stuff. Also, I didn't say, ah, no, but. I said, well, he does do X, Y, Z, because mm. it was the only thing I could think of that he did. See, when I hear, well, he does, I hear, to be fair, which means I'm being so unfair. <laughs> no, uh, not what I meant. Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, like, Finn Wolfhard's great. It feels like the ideal would be that uh, we'd be watching the next season of uh, Stranger Things now and the kids would be like, what did you do over the summer? And he'd be like, <sighs> ghost hunting. Or just something like that. Just a little reference to that. I do like the idea of Dealt him with a boggart. not <laughs> wanting to be there so much that the car becomes a way that he could potentially leave. Yeah. And then you've got a balance between the three of them of Phoebe who more and more wants to be there yeah. Callie who doesn't want to be there but grudgingly has to mm. and Trevor whose attitude becomes well I really don't need to be here yeah and you know he is so close 
to adulthood, you could see him sort of like just deciding, oh, fuck this, I'm going to go. It's a very fine line to walk for me with big brothers in movies because I never had a big brother. I was always having to be the big brother. So it, the the big brother in, say, Jurassic World annoyed the shit out of me because he like, he was awful. So so why are we watching you? Like, Lex and why Tim you care about each other. Why are by a dinosaur? Yeah, the, 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 the PA girl gets eaten by fucking pterodactyls and a uh, a mosasaur for the crime of not paying attention to the kids the brother's way worse I wonder if part of the difficulty here is that adult writers have difficulty creating Mm. multi-layered teenagers because teenagers are by their very nature quite internal quite introverted they like to do one thing to excess often yes and it's and that's that is hormonal that is entirely normal and what teenagers are supposed Mm. to do but at least with teenage girls you can fall into the cultural stereotype of well let's just focus on the fact that she's obsessed with her friends and create a set of relationships Mm. around her that at least means something's happening yeah i mean it would make more sense if um if he wasn't into ghosts but as it turns out, uh, Lucky really is. So she'd actually make for a really good Ghostbuster. I think uh, one thing Jason said during the making of stuff was, uh, you know, the, the best thing about this film is anyone could be a Ghostbuster. And I'm like, that's not true, though, is it? Like, you can put the overalls on someone. If they don't want to know about ghosts, they will take those overalls off. Mm, yeah, and strictly speaking, everybody here who becomes a Ghostbuster was either a Ghostbuster already or is a Spengler. Yep. Or podcast, who was just like, I am totally in for anything mysterious. True. I love yep. podcasts. Okay. I'm going to say this now. Yeah. Podcast is awesome. I love podcasts. Yeah. I mean, I, originally when I first... Podcast got the big laugh out of me when I first saw the uh, movie. I'll, I'll spoil it right now. He's called Podcast because he has a podcast. But he mentions uh, <laughs> that uh, the that he, he gives... Um, uh, Phoebe, a little memory stick, went like a, almost like a little friendship bracelet, and it's sort of here's my podcast. It really finds its voice with episode forty six, and it's like, yeah, podcasts really do need time to kind of like get into it. But my god, don't make her listen to one through forty five. <laughs> and then when Ray says to him at the end, ah, really found its voice with episode forty six, and he goes, you're my subscriber. I laughed out loud in the cinema and nobody else did. That was purely for the podcasters. <laughs> that was. The score for Ghostbusters Afterlife was composed by Rob Simonson, though it does utilise a hell of a lot from the original Ghostbusters score by Elmer Bernstein, intentionally tweaking our nostalgia. He approached Peter Bernstein, Elmer's son, as score consultant, and they employed the Ondes Martinot, recognisable as the... <laughs> type instrument played by Cynthia Miller for this film but I especially love this track Dirt Farm because it's very deliberately evoking John Williams Okay, so McKenna Grace as Phoebe. Now, this uh, character, I think, is, is, is probably the best strength of the movie that isn't something based on something from the past. 
Like she's doing a little bit of the Harold Ramis performance, but she's trying to clearly bring this new youthful energy in. I, I said, you know, she was a gifted actress. She's also an actress who was in the film Gifted. Was that written by Chris Evans or? Do yes. Yeah. And uh, we would thoroughly recommend you see it. He plays an older brother in that, although he's in kind of a father role. And his uh, younger sister, played by McKenna Grace. She's his niece, not his sister. Niece, that's the one. Okay. Incredibly smart and entirely believably so. And so he has to basically decide what to do with her in a way that's going to give her the best chance at life and, and how difficult that can be sometimes, especially when you have very little money. She and he are fantastic in that. They have such chemistry together. I think one of the things I do love about her is she carries on that nice tradition of the characters in pretty much all the Ghostbusters, a lot of them are neurodivergent. Yeah. So you have Egon and Ray clearly from the first two, mm -hmm. and take your pick for, the, for 2016, because quite clearly Abby probably is. Mm. And, and definitely Holtzman. Holtzman is clear, most definitely. But that kind of, but it adds to the shop, and I like the fact it's not overblown. She can't, she doesn't get humor and things like that. Mm. But somehow she makes begrudging friends that start with podcasts. But it, it's a partnership that works for me. Mm. You have that liveliness that the podcast brings, opposed to sort of the slight reservedness of Phoebe. And I love Phoebe. Phoebe is fantastic. Mm. She she has a lot she has a lot of heavy lifting to do. That character has a lot of heavy lifting to do for the story, especially in the early parts, mm. and she manages it magnificently. She's also got quite a few lines which would make the audience dislike her. So it's uh, she she has to again tread a fine line between being a precocious, very very smart child who can't relate to other people and being so unrelatable that even the audience don't root for her. So uh, yeah, she she spins that particular series of plates with a delicacy. Mm. Are there any lines in particular? Because I have to admit, I can't... The way she talks to her mother to begin with, when, she, uh, when she's like, you know, you're rubbish at this. You're good at other things, like your, your enchiladas or something like that. Your, your, your enchiladas are good. They're excellent. Like, she's... It's, it drifted into... Um, Taylor, have you ever heard of the film The Book of Henry? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Yikes. Uh, it's interesting we are talking about Jurassic World just now. It's a Colin Trevorrow joint. Yeah, and that's why I've heard of it. I don't want to talk about it too much, but the dynamic that exists there is that there's a boy played, interestingly, by another of Finn Wolfhard's It co-stars, the kid who played Bill Denborough, uh, who is, again, a super genius. And his mum, played by Naomi Watts, is always playing Xbox, and she doesn't know how to do maths, and she's acting like a teenager all the time, and he's effectively being the dad of the house. You're like, oh, okay, so this is going to be an annoying, precocious thing, and the mom needs to sort of grow up. And then, actually, I won't say what happens next. It's messed up. But Sharon and I will do an after-school club on it. We already tried one, and it's one of the few times I've ever rage-quit a podcast. We only got a few minutes of footage on that one. I'll go back to it and try not to break down. One thing I really appreciated about how they play Phoebe's neurodivergent traits is that quite frequently, when you have a character who has those traits, they drop them conveniently when it is narratively appropriate. Yeah. And 
and what I mean by that is there's there's a difference between that and the character having an arc whereby they specifically work on improving those traits because they don't feel comfortable with them. Mm. Whereas with Phoebe, everything she does, which kind of screams neurodivergence, also feels like very much a part of her and they remain part of her throughout. There's a lovely bit that I noticed when, I can't remember exactly what happens, but Podcast gets really excited and hugs her and she's kind of stood there with her hands like this because she doesn't, I I know it's a visual thing and it's a podcast. She's basically holding her arms out to the side. She's not objecting to the hug, but she literally has no idea what to do with her arms. (laughs) And I just thought that was so sweet. That's well observed, yeah. There's only one part of the movie where where I go from thinking this is consistent with a character the whole way through, and that's when she when Bokeem Woodbine, the sheriff, so, sort of stands in the way and stonewalls her and says, "No, we're keeping these uh, extremely dangerous, unlicensed nuclear accelerators, and uh, we're impounding this vehicle you are driving illegally," and she grabs the neutrino wand and sticks it right in his face. And he is entirely, like, he doesn't know what this fucking thing does, but he doesn't blink, which means he's had guns pointed at him before. She knows this will kill him. Like, if, 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 just switch that scene around, and when she's not grabbing the neutrino wand, she's grabbing a Beretta 92F from his gun belt. Now play some Kubrick-style music. It's a really dark scene, and it... it, it doesn't it never gets referenced again you can't have a kid pull a gun on an adult and a, a, a black cop for that matter and not reference it again or have her go why the hell did I do that but especially that's, considering later on when they're getting that stuff back she's actually bemoaning the fact that all she can find is guns stupid guns yeah so uh, yeah, that's, that's baffling and, and a weird choice. And there's several baffling weird choices in the film, but uh, we'll we'll get to those in a bit. So Gary Gruberson, played by Paul Rudd, who was voted handsomest boy of sexiest, Albany, New York, yeah, last sexiest year. man of 2021. He's 52. at the age of 52. I just I can't even. The man hasn't aged a day since Clueless. Jason Momoa phones him up and goes, "So uh, I exist, and yet somehow you got sexiest man of 2021." How'd you do that? <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, he's he's a lovely guy. And uh, this was actually something that uh, um, Jason Reitman had been wanting to do for a long, long time, which is to work with Paul Rudd. And his remit appears to be, be Generation X, but supportive. Be a slightly more intelligent, likeable Lewis Tully. Kind of, yeah. It's what he is. It's, it's kind of the analogy, but, but he is... It, it, is the character likable, or is it because it's Paul Rudd who is instantly likable? Yeah, I'm wondering who 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 could play him that we would immediately dislike. If it was Mark Gilbert Wahlberg. Gottfried playing this guy. Okay, now I'm gonna put on Cujo for you kids. Don't bother me. I think he. Oh has... no 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 no! You know what they should have done? Brad Dorf. Oh yeah, really creepy Brad Dorf. <laughs> Especially as he puts on child's Child play at play. one point. It's like ah, oh, uh, that that crazy doll. Yeah, no. There is yeah. a bit. He's of a, a shit teacher. He is a shit teacher. He there doesn't is a care. Bit of a push pull with Gary in terms of his affability mm. because he's nice to people, but he clearly can't stand the town. Yeah. 
It's yeah. a little contemptuous of it, and it never really seems to go anywhere or get resolved. Which does sort of beg the question that he he glums onto Callie really fast. Yeah. And really hard. Oh, you're and a big city type. In part, I was like, well, this is just his nice guy persona. Mm. He's obviously just really friendly. And hang on a minute. Might it be the fact that she's the most interesting thing that's happened here it is. ever? Right. I mean, they have a nice chemistry together. They're very, they're, they're good at offhand, seemingly improvised dialogue back and forth. Yes, they are. Which, uh, if you, I don't know if you recall, Diablo Cody's excellent at writing dialogue that sometimes sounds a little stagey. But then the actors in Juno do make it sound unrehearsed. Just tell it to me straight, Bren. You think this is my fault? I think kids get bored and they have intercourse. And I think Junebug was a dummy about it, Mac. I am not ready to be a pop-pop. You're not going to be a pop-pop. Somebody else is going to find a precious blessing from Jesus in this garbage dump of a situation. Did you see that coming when she sat us down here? Yeah, but I was hoping she was expelled her into hard drugs. That was my first instinct, too. I do like, and I miss, Diablo Cody. Hollywood did her dirty. But yeah, uh, ultimately, Gary is supposed to be us saying, oh, you guys haven't heard about the Ghostbusters? They're so cool! And sort of show the kids what the Ghostbusters were. I, I just imagine, like, that he's, to a degree, a little bit of... There are stories about what happened. He's a bit their hand solo, and he uh, shares that role with one other major character in this. But, I mean, ultimately, he's not that much mature than podcast. In fact, if anything, there are times when podcast seems to be a bit more kind of on top of things than he is. He's just this 51-year-old boy. He, he just seems... I think they are trying to go for a lovable loser with him. Mm. Lovable, smart scientist loser. Yeah. Because he isn't... The thing is, he's not stupid. He likes science. He's good at science. Yeah. But... That's kind of what he cares about. He doesn't care that he's teaching these kids, clearly because I found Cujo and Child's Play in the teacher's lounge. <laughs> yeah, he, I, I get, he's there effectively using the teaching job as a cover to, if you folks haven't seen it, to uh, research the strange seismic events taking place in this town. The town itself... I think this is a failing, and this is another thing. None of the other films really managed it. The closest was Ghostbusters 2. The town doesn't get particularly involved in the ghosts being mm. busted. It, it really hit me this time how deserted it is, yeah. especially when you're mentally comparing it with New York. Yeah. Now, th this is a little bit of an unfair comparison because ultimately New York comes with its own built-in persona. Yeah. But you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Yeah. But you think about in Ghostbusters 1 and 2 how... Many people were around, getting mm. involved, getting hurt, being on the on the periphery, just running in and out of camera all the time, making it feel alive. Sometimes, literally, that guy goes <laughs> into the news camera. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 city of New York is maybe the most important character in Ghostbusters. Yeah, and then you've got a similar thing going on with Answer the Call. There is ultimately there's people definitely there's, there's people there, and it feels like there is a world beyond this small group that the ghosts will affect if they go beyond mm. it. But Somerville is empty. And also the people seem to go out of their way to say, you shouldn't like or care about us. Like the first woman who uh, meets uh, Callie is like, oh, your, your dad was the dirt farmer? I suppose he'll be missed. Nah. And then she wanders off never to return to the movie yeah. again. It, it feels it, like... It, it agrees with Gary that this place is shithole, butt fuck nowhere. But, but beyond that... And that the people aren't worth anything, it... which Gravity Falls 
definitely doesn't, doesn't do. do. Yeah, exactly. But it, it beyond that, it makes it feel like it is literally a ghost town. That the people who turn up to interact with the Spenglers turn up solely to interact with the Spenglers so that they can have somebody to talk to. Mm over a particular situation, and as soon as that conversation's finished, they disappear again. It seems weird that Janine turns up at the beginning and goes, it's it's wonderful to see Annie Potts. And she's like, yeah, I was just here, just kind of living with your father for decades. And, you know, he was very quiet, and he never told me what he was doing up here, even though I'm the one person he absolutely should have told something about. It's, it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> they don't do the small town good, mm. because... The only comparison that's coming to my mind, I'm sorry, I watched it recently, is the Blob remake. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good remake. Excellent comparison. That bit where the Blob falls on that guy from the ceiling? Oh. It's alerting expectations. But no, what I'm thinking about is that takes place in a small town and you feel it and you get a feel of the town and you mm. get a feel of the characters, including people like the sheriff and things like that. Yeah. Whereas Ghostbusters Afterlife doesn't do that and it doesn't set the turn off ball, so you don't really it's just a sandbox for ghosts cause havoc in during the, the ending towards the end of the movie. Yeah. I mean that's what your seventy five million buys you not many extras. Scream does a really good job of getting everybody involved. The original first Scream film, as you know, lots of press, lots of people rushing around, it being set in a high school helps. But like none of the other kids in the the high school that they they frequent talk to them. Um, uh, what's another one that uh, that small town but feels like it's populated? Um, oh, the faculty also I think oh, yeah. by Kevin Williamson. Yeah, yeah. Would you like if you're going to invade America? Would you uh, uh, blow up the White House or sneak in through the back door? Man, the faculty's good. We are going to cover the faculty. Faculty is excellent. Yeah. Uh, so we've already established that Logan Kim as, as podcast is, is fun and he's he's kind of there and uh, he's enthusiastic, but um, he's kind of like a little mini Ray. You could imagine Ray he starting is, out like this. He is the closest analogy to, well, I suppose Phoebe probably counts as analogous to, to Egon, but yeah. he, he is definitely analogous to Ray. Which means that the film is really lacking in a Peter Venkman. So if you're going to make anyone acerbic and really, really funny... Um, then I suppose make they should it... have made Lucky. They should have made Lucky that character. Oh yeah, either make Lucky that character or cast um, D- Jack Dylan Grazer as uh, Trevor Finn Wolfhard's co-star. Uh, he was uh, Eddie, and probably the best thing in Shazam, Freddy. Oh, it's a it's a long way down. Trust me, I speak from experience. Victor pushed me. They seem nice, but don't buy it. It gets real Game of Thrones around here. What? Dude, I'm just, just messing around. It's, um, it's terminal cancer. I only have three months. Kidding, again? You look at me and you're like, why so dark? You're a disabled foster kid. You've got it all, right? He's just so fucking funny. And just maybe just let him say his own lines. Just let him improv his way through. Because him being that level of sarcastic gets you a little mini Venkman. Yes. The trouble is, do you need them all to be analogous to the originals? Because then... Honestly, you're best off not. It would actually have been a better idea to, uh, to, to sort of bring more... 
Willow said that they're bringing more that's new to the table, and they specifically new ingredients to the table. Yeah. But they specifically said it when we were watching the Muncher sequence, and the Muncher sequence is Slimer with extra effects. Well, no, they were talking about the the kids and mm. the fact that they weren't simply kid versions of the original characters. Mm. But I mean, the ladies in the answer the call aren't analogous to any of the existing characters. I suppose Paddy's not a million miles off of Winston, but her attitude's completely different. Mm. This was definitely accused in a lot of critical appraisals as being too laden down with fan service. If you consider fan service to be almost like Christmas baubles, it's a gaudily over-decorated tree of... We we caught loads of obvious Ghostbusters references, and then we watched the Easter eggs bit on the Blu-ray, and we were like, wow... That there's little designs on one of Phoebe's shirts that are this star, the square, and a couple of wavy lines from the cards oh, at the that. beginning. That's brilliant. Mm. See, the thing is, there's there's multiple ways that you can look at that. It's either relentless fan service, or it's a film that's being made by people who loved the originals mm. and are pouring their own care and attention to detail into background stuff that may never get seen. Yes. That doesn't make for a strong story, though. No, it doesn't. That make doesn't for a make for a strong story. story or necessarily strong characters. It feels like certain really important pieces of a movie were put by the wayside in favour of. Do you recognise this? This I would. We say got bug eye. Do you ever have the bug eye toy? Yep. Bug eyes in this for I like would, a, a hot second. I would say it this way then: there is a difference between fan service in the narrative mm. and fan service in the set design and, mm. and background detail. The latter is brilliant and it, it mm. goes to world building and it makes it feel real. And it did feel like a lived-in world with the exception of the absence of people. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. did feel like a, a very solid existing mm. place and an existing, like all the, the technical stuff, all the equipment and everything, it felt very real and very chunky. And I, I loved that sense of everything being very hands-on. Hmm. More uh, Force Awakens because they went, uh, they deliberately drove towards a practical, lived-in hmm. version of Star Wars, which we hadn't had for quite a while. Yeah. So yeah, you don't actually need any of the kids to be a miniature Peter Venkman. In fact, probably best not to. He's a creep, even by 1984 standards. But having someone there who is both naturally, instantly hilarious and sceptical is of value to the story structure and the overall enjoyable tone of the movie. Their practical and digital effects, they, they leaned on practical when they didn't have to, which is good. Like, oh. ultimately... Uh, you know, I would always go with practical until it's impossible. Mm. And there are times when I'm like, honestly, they went practical, 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 and then this thing has to run around here. Like, I'm thinking the terror dogs here. But they managed to match the skin texture of the practical model so that it actually feels like there is a cohesion between the two versions you're seeing. You are always aware, however, that there's two kinds of effects going on rather than engaging with the film and I feel like had it been funnier and had there been better more tangible drama we would forgive any sense of this is a love letter to Ghostbusters because it would be able to stand up on its own as this is really solid the one that I always go back to over and over again in this instance is the Lego movie which is yeah. filled with little references 
and nods and winks, but is so strong in what it's doing and so clear in how it does it and so funny the whole way through that it never feels like Ready Player One ended up, which is just like, you know... Reference. Uh, do you remember Buckaroo Banzai? Here's his coat. Remember the Holy Hand Buckaroo Grenade? Banzai? No, well, you, I don't. You count to... Uh, enough, here's Chucky. You count to five and then you throw it, or possibly three. I don't know. But the some of the practical elements of it were both ingenious and tiny. The scene with the little mini Stay Puffs mm-hmm. bursting oh. out of the bag, there's a, the, a bit at the very beginning of that sequence where all you can see is the bag on the shelf wiggling. Mm-hmm. And you would assume that they would just CG that so that they can move seamlessly into the little beings actually coming out of the bag. No, that was somebody sat behind the shelves poking the bag through a hole in the shelf. They the they made little uh, marshmallow guys out of marshmallow so that the camera could look at the marshmallow under that lighting on the shelf so that the effects folks would know exactly how to texture their marshmallow dudes. Just for sight gags, like these things are just there. So you're like, oh, marshmallow men, that was nice. That balance between CG and practical and using one to enhance the other mm. rather than just doing it the easy way or yeah. doing it the the sloppy way or whatever mm. people will have different opinions on it but that it's the it's the blend that makes this work the times when this film is at its absolute best are when it goes further than that no previous Ghostbusters actually managed to handle drama well before and this one blows them all away in terms of actually making me feel Oh, I cried so many times watching this the first time through. Oh, yeah. The opening ten... Well, it's not ten minutes. I'd say the opening five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that had me blubbing like a baby. And then the ending had me blubbing like a baby. Yeah, we'll be saving that for the end, folks. But it, it's special. And you'll understand why when we get there. Uh, another thing I loved was... And we discussed this back in 2013. It's a fishing line, not a laser gun. The neutrino wand is not for just shooting ghosts and then they explode, which is something they did not get in 2016. The uh, like the, 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 the almost much more tangible cable-like uh, um, heft that actually allowed Gozer to start pulling people around by their uh, um, neutrino wand beams. It made it really feel like, I mean, the, the, just to go back over the principle, folks, ghosts exist with negative particles and the neutrino wand pulls those negatives into positives to allow them to be physical enough to be snared by the trap just long enough. And it's not simply a case of boom, Two things just to observe with regards to the atmosphere of the whole thing. The the feel of it, and this is going to be partly because it's the small town in the middle of nowhere and partly because we are dealing with kids and teenagers, it feels very Stephen King and very Spielberg-y by... Association. Association, yeah. And that, that having Finn Wolfhard there doesn't help that because the Stranger Things kind of knits them together in mm. the middle. The other thing that struck me about Atmosphere, specifically this is for the scene where they're driving through the town and the, the Ecto-1 is going all over everywhere. and They're doing drifts. They are. Did it feel to anybody else kind of theme park ride E and that, not in a yes. bad way, and I don't, I don't mean that to sound. You like mean like the good it. theme park wise, the, not the jiggle boxes. Well, the thing that kept popping into my head was the haunted mansion. Mm. Yeah, 
No, but yeah, no, no, I know exactly what you're saying with that. It definitely felt sort of that sort of that ride that you're sitting and it takes you on a, it literally takes you on a ride and that's what it feels like as you mm. go along there. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. It, it makes it really cool. Um, I actually think the second chase through the town is is the better one because it just has an excellent moment with Phoebe and her mom. So I, I just happens. Mm. Hang on, where am I? Because I just need to nip out and shoot something, and it's just Mwah. Yeah, I love that. I love that beat. That's they they also have a great chemistry. When uh, Carrie Coon first turns up as Callie, I was uh, thinking the standard mum in this scenario will kind of set things up and then step back and not really take part in this particular adventure. But she's really there a lot of the way through, and um, again, she's a source of a lot of the dramatic tension. And she's got a, a history of doing a lot of great drama TV, and so she sort of brings that along with her. And she, there's a bitterness to her character, which she kind of pulls inside, and she seems tired. She is not averse to letting that bitterness out when she's really had it, though. Mm. And she only does it a couple of times, but I actually think it's to really good effect because it does make her feel like much more of a person and not like that mum stereotype that, like you said, sets the pieces up and then stands in the background. Mm. And another thing that I really appreciated about how her... And again, a lot of this is going to be stacked towards the end, but her feelings towards Egon throughout the film are very specific. They are not replicated at all in Phoebe and Trevor's attitude to their father. So you don't get this sense of, well, we only know how to do one shape of Mm. abandoned kid. I've just realised what film this kind of reminds me of, and that is one where it's not actually a parent, but a guardian, where Bebe Newerth says, right, here you go, kids, I'm going to set this up, then I'm going to step away and let you Jumanji the hell out of the town. (laughs) This is actually kind of like Jumanji, in that when that trap gets opened, all hell breaks loose, kind of like Jumanji, and the kids are driving around the place having to do way more than kids of their age should... And the ghosts are running amok in that kind of uh, Jumanji way. Because Sarah mentioned it, I did say to you in the message earlier that this has a very Amblin feel to it. Amblin yeah. Same to it, and it really does. Again, like you pointed out, it's kids with flashlight and dark But it's a good thing. It's a warm, pleasant feeling. Maybe nostalgic feeling. Again, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's definitely nostalgic. It's 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 that kind of... When we say Amblin, like most of our minds go straight to E.T. when we, th- we think about uh, Amblin style films. But I was getting when she's down sort of looking through the, um, uh, the, the mine ruins, uh, I was like getting Raiders vibes off of that. And then just sort of strange things happening and lights in the sky. That was very, especially in this particular country setting, that's very Close Encounters. Not a movie I particularly like at all, but it was definitely hearkening back to that. Yeah, and a lot of that does kind of evoke a feeling of not so much the Ghostbusters, but the mid-80s yeah. when you saw the Ghostbusters. Yeah. <sighs> the Muncher sequence... This, and this is the third time I saw it, I was baffled that there is no Slimer anywhere in this movie. And I think even the original uh, Ghostbuster actors were baffled at how popular Slimer became. They were like, okay, so he was one green ghost in Ghostbusters, then we had a load of others, and then he flies at the camera at the end and goes, ah! And then Frank Welker voices him in the cartoon, and suddenly he's bigger than the Ghostbusters. He got his own show for a while. The Slimer Half Hour. Yeah, Slimer is the Boba Fett of the Ghostbusters. He kind of is. Um, And and I was like, 
like, surely when you get to the fire station at the end, Winston sort of looks around the place, lays his hands on Ecto-1, and is like, ah, oh, and we're back. And then just Slimer flies past between two doors, still stuffing his face. It's like, you've been there the whole time? Yeah, we need the, the real Ghostbusters Slimer instead of the, the movie version of Slimer because he was yeah. more likable. <laughs> that version. Yeah, the Frank Welker version was instantly likable. But yeah, no, because Muncher is Slimer. Only. Yeah, Slimer eats standard. food yeah. and Muncher eats everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, that. This is the thing that Willow specifically said, like they're, they're making it different. And I did get confused when it came to um, metal. Do you remember when they let Muncher out of his trap? He has to bite his way out of that cell. He can't get out. Like, he he's bites through the bars because they're constraining him. But earlier in the film, he flies through walls and just slimes yeah. them. And it's like... He can't fly through metal. Oh, right. He, it's he, just metal. He has to interact solidly with okay. metal, apparently. And that's why his shape is constantly changing, because all of those metal bits that he eats all right. stay inside him and shift around within his hmm. frame. I would have liked for podcasts to have... Um, that like thought about that and yeah. worked out yeah. but then again I like the way that podcast works out how to get their stuff back it's mm. almost like a monkey island puzzle absolutely uh, apparently uh, Jason Reitman's reason for not including Slimer was that he wanted to work with the sense that different places have different ghosts and mm-hmm. Slimer is a New York ghost uh-huh yeah. and Gozer and the Terror Dogs and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and the Taxi Ghost yeah, yeah. Good Can't point. explain the tactics. And Zool and Vince Clotho. I mean, we didn't get the library ghost. We didn't get Twitty. Oh, well, one thing that um, the lovely Annie Potts said, and uh, th- there were several things that made me uh, go, ah, about Ghostbusters. One thing Jason Reitman said was that there are things that you think will scare you and they make you laugh. And then there are things that they, you think will make you laugh, but they scare you. And that's part of the magic of Ghostbusters. And he was like a seven-year-old kid or, yeah, uh, around about that, um, on set with, uh, you know, with his dad, sort of, as I said, becoming the first Ghostbusters fan. But the way Annie Potts put it, it was shouting boo at kids on Halloween. You're in the context correctly, so kids are kind of geared up for it. You've got... She talks about how kids come around to her house on Halloween dressed as Ghostbusters... And you said she needs to answer the door every time with Ghostbusters. What do you want? <laughs> but yeah, th- that's what Ghostbusters is. It's shouting boo, so you go ah, ha, 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 which is kind of like I mean, a lot of slasher movies and horror movies do do that, but then they tend to get so fucking nasty that it's hard to keep laughing. Mm. They also seem to rely more on a spiteful sense of wanting to see teenagers die, which Ghostbusters is never really about people dying. At least it wasn't until recently. Yeah, well, Which I'm is ironic to... considering the subject matter. Indeed. The, I mean, this is very much a, a Stephen King thing, that there is a fine line between screaming with terror and screaming with laughter. Mm. And a lot of the time, it's the same scream. It's just that somewhere in the middle of it, you either realise that the thing is not as threatening as you thought it was, or you realise that the thing is not in fact ridiculous and is going to kill you. I think the reason why some types of horror films, or some horror films in particular slashes, tend to err on the wrong side of that is that the only sense of relief that's in there is this is not happening to me, and that's quite self-interested. 
Speaking of uh, uh, other kinds of creepy, weird-ass movies, uh, the point where Paul Rudd's going to look for ice cream in the, uh, not even Gary, just Paul Rudd, Ultimart, he picks up some sauce just before he gets to the mini marshmallows and mutters to himself, Blue Velvet, that has got to be a reference to the David Lynch film. It's got to be. I'm, I'm one reference back, because what ice cream does he pick? Oh. Baskin Robbins. Baskin Robbins. They always find out. I swear that's a reference to Ant-Man. Oh, nice. <laughs> well done. Well, see, Blue Velvet is about a cre- the, you know the, the creepiness that lies below, below the surface of every quaint American town. And frankly, I wish they'd done more of that. Made it more yeah. like eerie Indiana and less Especially like... Especially considering, a back if lot. you think of the, the whole setup of this town, mm. this is a town set up by Evo Shandor. Yeah. Who's meant to be very creepy and into some weird stuff. So they should have been a weird, creepy... Like you said, there should have been an eerie Indiana feel to it. Again, mm. maybe the budget constraints, story constraints didn't allow that, but that would have given it more of a an, an, int- an interesting setting for us to care about that setting mm. instead of it being, again, sandbox. You, you know, could it's a end up street. throwing more elements into it, but you could also just hint at mysteries going deeper. I mean, they already have done. The fact that uh, uh, Gary says this map is written, you know, uh, is, is of this area, but it's written in a language from thousands of years ago. It's like, ooh, those are some interesting questions. And sometimes I really like interesting, mysterious questions that don't get answered. And you maybe just leave it at that because looking for answers could end up just nailing it to the mast and being quite boring. Yeah, but then law fans are really, really into that nailing. Um, it, yeah, the trouble is sometimes law leaves no room for story. Yeah, but I however, hate using that quote considering who it came from. But yeah, no, that's 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 a problem sometimes. However, sometimes in your rush to get to the next bit, you can leave something rather important behind. I'm not like uh, I'm, I'm not going to go to bat in like of a taskmaster regarding Evo Shandor here. But Evo Shandor's been like a, an important name for Ghostbusters fans for a long, long time. He was supposed to be what came through the portal at the end of the original Ghostbusters, played by Pee Wee Herman, uh, Paul Rubens. Oh. And uh, he turns up as the big bad villain at the end of the 2009 Ghostbusters game as they kind of make good on that particular uh, scenario. And then this town was built by him. So it's like, oh my God, Evo Shandor, what could he be about? And then you see his fucking mummified corpse in a glass coffin like, that's fascinating. Oh, brilliant. I don't necessarily need him to come back, but that's so creepy. And then he literally comes back to life and he's played by J.K. Simmons. And it's like, oh my God, you've got J.K. Simmons to play this guy? This is going to be, oh, she's torn him in half <laughs> it's like and there he was gone it's like that is the that is such a especially because you got jackie simmons it's such a letdown it's like wait what it is almost the i hate to say it, it's the who's raised parents of the ghostbusters i mean it's important it's not important if you're going to talk about villains getting cut in half it's the snoke but uh, but in this scenario in the last jedi cutting snoke in half was going okay we're doing return of the jedi again and he's the gloating emperor palpatine but what if kylo or vader just did go oh fuck this guy he's been the cause of all of my misery and just fucking killed him and then we proceed from there with whole new stakes. And then the Star Wars crew went, oh, no, wait, wait, go back, go back, go back. Go back to where we were with Palpatine going, strike me down with all of your hatred. And, and Ray going, why? That seems like a bad idea. Plus, this is really familiar. But with Evo Shandor, it's not like it's going back to a scenario where we had an Evo Shandor. I mean, te- te- 
technically, yes, we kind of did. Because the villain in the Answer the Call version, the, remember the guy who mm. like hates all of society and has decided it's too sick to live? That's Evo Shandor for that particular universe. And like he's got a real fucking bee in his bonnet about people and he hates them all. So if this Evo Shandor had started opining about people, who, by the way, he hasn't kept tabs on for a good 70 years... He's been dead that whole time and in a glass coffin. But, you know, he he would have said something along those lines. So to a degree, him being ripped in half does kind of save us from that. But then he's replaced by Goza doing the Goza thing. So it's it's like, okay, so now the villain is the Death Star. <laughs> okay, then. It doesn't, like, it doesn't pave the way for a more interesting new setup in just ripping him in half like that. And it is kind of anticlimactic it's also edited in such a way like it, they turn that bit into a montage if you look at it like there's some ghosts running amok in the town he goes to goza and says ah goza my queen she rips him in half we cut to the town again and some like ghosts are running around then we cut to her giving scritches to the terror dog and it's like there were at least two scenes there what's gone now yeah, so it's the same as ghostbusters 2016 where it's like what are we not being told from what was dropped from the script at this point. Like, I'm sure, like, this is where you stick the stuff in your deleted scenes and you have talking about it in the commentary and you say, we did it for these reasons and I think the film is better as a result of that. Rather than just, nope, not saying a word about that. You piece that one together yourself. Yeah, you don't hire J.K. Simmons for a throwaway role, it surely. It does seem odd. Well, he's worked with, it's not, it wasn't just out of the blue. He has worked with Jason Reitman in the past. I'm he's gonna, been in all of his films. I'm going to punch that bleaker kid. Oh, so he's, he, he's basically the Bruce Campbell. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense for him to be like, I need one guy to be Evo Shandor. But like, if you're going to do that, have him raise up in front of the kids, like glowing eyes and like, now I shall, like have him shout some stuff before she then rips him in half and have the kids go, oh, like have the kids be us, the audience. Yeah, you, you use it to ratchet the tension. You think this is the villain and then all of a sudden he's torn apart and then there's Gozer and yeah. if you know who Gozer is, you're like... Oh, shit. I suppose all we're doing here is describing different framing. And it, you know what? It's weirdly possible that something about what he was saying is, I'm going to send plagues upon the earth or something that just doesn't work in 2021. You may have noticed, by the way, that when they're looking at all of the numbers and they're saying, oh, look, the Tunguska blast. Oh, look, 1914. Oh, look, 1944. Oh, look, 1984. And these are terrible things happening. And then McKenna Gray sort of points up and doesn't say the number of the year. And it's definitely got a one there. But it was probably 2020 because it was originally going to be released in 2020. And it was like, oh, yes, the apocalypse began in 2020. Yep, we're editing that line out. And could we please get some digital effects to paste a one over that zero? Yeah, let's, let's not mention that and um, possibly yeah. why there's not so many people in this movie. Oh, God, yeah. They finished shooting before the pandemic. Okay. So I'm I'm not entirely sure what the actual like because if you remember that was one of the films that was getting advertised before we even knew there was a pandemic so it's like they were done they were just in the yeah, post edit. This was one of those rare movies where I didn't watch the trailers. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, again, I, I, it all, always fascinates me knowing what movies what the movies we were gonna get were and. 
I am definitely not of the mind where it's like, whatever the working cut of the movie was, that's what needs to get released. I have an editor brain. That tells me you edit and edit and edit until it works as well as it possibly can. And any longer versions you have, it is fine to leave those bits out. Yeah, sometimes even when you get a director's cut, it's shorter and it's better for reasons. <laughs> Alien having... springs to mind. So the Judgment Day, it seems familiar, and there's a, a specific musical cue, which I will play for you now. And it's so weird that it doesn't immediately then go... Obviously, in my head, I've heard one lead into the other so many times. So if you're not going to do that, at least get the like that feeling of, right, we've got to save the day. But what actually happens is they go into the house and mom is Zool now. So it's like, oh, okay, so I guess we're still finding stuff out. I mean, that's cool too. But it's really difficult to shake the feeling that this is kind of just repeating the New York thing on a smaller scale level. And it's a little tiny isolated apocalypse. And yeah. again, the, the, the budget of the movie starts showing. And, and these are things that you can mitigate somewhat with people. You can't do it in a foolproof manner. If you remember, do you remember the theatrical cut of Justice League introduced uh, uh, an Eastern European family to put in yes. danger just so that you could have Superman save them so that Superman's saving someone rather than the thing he does is turn up, mutilate uh, Steppenwolf and then uh, cut his head off. This is the time when you change it up a bit. And they, they, they did, to a degree. The whole, like, everything to do with Egon in this movie, and it, that the whole thing is a mystery of what was he doing. He was investigating this, and yes, he worked out that this was going to happen. But the measures that he made in order to contain it and then to potentially have his work carried on. I looked, when she, McKenna Grace's uh, Phoebe talks to Ray on the phone, there is a bitterness in that exchange where uh, Ray says you know Egon Spengler can rot in hell I'm like ooh that hurts that hurts to hear characters that we love talking about others in such a awful way and it's like folks angry at the last Jedi Luke Leia and Han still held a great affection for one another so the equivalent here of Ray being like I don't care if Egon's alive or dead oh he's dead oh I'm gonna kind of go through something but it'll all be off camera don't worry no drama that phone call felt dissatisfying and I suppose set them up for in just the right way for them to turn up at the end and, and be the cavalry who gives the kids a chance when they do turn up, for a start, it wasn't a surprise because uh, if you are into toys, toys spoil everything. 
So like I, I wasn't now even. You know why I didn't watch watch trailers or um, <laughs> storylines? Even if you avoid trailers, like if if you sort of, I was shopping on Zavi for something else entirely, a, a Blu-ray of some kind, and I got Ghostbusters Afterlife figures. I was like, okay, Peter Venkman. Oh shit, they got Bill Murray, and this was fucking months before the film came out, and I was like, Bill Murray. And then it was like Ray figure, and then podcast figure. There's a character called Podcast, yes. and uh, of, this is uh, again a problem of um, timing. Do you remember when the original Hobbit Lego came out, and it contained stuff to do with the elf things that are in film two? Because originally that film two stuff was going to be part of film one before they split it into three, but the toys had to come out anyway. And they couldn't hold them back. And in this scenario, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife got delayed so many times, they were like, fuck it, let's at least put out these old, old-looking Ghostbuster figures uh, for the uh, for the Gen Xers to buy. Not knowing that, I was quite ha- I got a nice surprise then at the end. Nice. I, I, I didn't want to spoil it for anyone else by mentioning that fact, um, you know, around about that time. There is something about the fact that Toys R Us is now closed, and the fact that the average toy buyer spends a large amount on their figures and is over 40. That suggests that they didn't really court young Gen Xers uh, that much. Like it was, If you were growing up in the 80s during the Reagan era, you were the one who was targeted with all of these tie-in cartoons and action figures. Ghostbusters! Each sold separately. Go! Proton Pack and Ghost Popper Gun, each sold separately. The real Ghostbusters from Kenner. And the kids now just care about apps. These kids today with their iPads. And that means the only real generation that was really ever going to be into action figures, and I'm looking at several dozen right now, is late Gen Xers and early Millennials. We're the ones still doing the buying. And... Something It feels to me like the reason that Disney stalled on Star Wars movies was because they were expecting a lot different of a uh, kid response to toys and merchandising uh, than they actually got. Kids like video games and digital content and Fortnite skins a lot more than they like a plastic dude. Also a theme park that can actually walk around. Yeah, that would also be helpful. There's something strange in the neighborhood. So who are you going to call? We're now actually past the time where Ghostbusters or even maybe Star Wars can be that much of a big merchandise scenario. Oh, I know there's a ton of merchandise out there, but I also feel like everyone who was ever going to buy loads and loads of Star Wars stuff is now kind of looking at their Star Wars stuff and deciding to be more selective in future. There's permanent immovable hatred for the sequel trilogy. So a lot of guys into action figures only buy original trilogy. 
although they might dabble in the TV shows that remind them of the original trilogy. It is very notable that Last Jedi, Rogue One and Solo figures just sat on pegs, and they have never made a 6-inch Black Series figure of Luke Skywalker as he appears in his mental projection, distracting the First Order and his maniacal nephew long enough for the scraps of the Resistance to escape, and thus being the inspiring hero on the battlefield that everyone wanted him to be, but without killing even a single Stormtrooper. I would really love to own that figure were it to exist, but they have a vast, vast overstock of Luke Skywalker in his old Jedi robes from the end of Force Awakens that he gets rid of almost immediately that nobody was buying, along with a million Rose Ticos. Head on desk. They've also stopped giving them any kind of colourful new packaging like they did with Power of the Force in the 90s or Power of the Jedi or Episode 1 or Episode 2 or Episode 3. Every Star Wars figure is now marketed in the plain black of the original Kenner figures. The perception of need and value commensurate with how the original 100 or so figures were incredibly difficult to get hold of until eBay came along. And you may be saying, Alex, shut up about Star Wars, we're talking about Ghostbusters. Same generation. Absolutely, this is is relevant. You may also be rightly saying, Alex, you're playing sad music over a lack of commercial merchandise viability. Capitalism is dying a little death, boo-hoo. And you'd be right to do so. That would be grotesque if that was what I was lamenting. And I'm glad that contemporary kids aren't having figures marketed to them like this. That contemporary kids have moved on. Though they are being preyed upon by digital storefronts in even more insidious ways. But there is a loss of innocence and a loss of wonder that transcends buying things things. It's to do with a whole generation caring about something, loving something that much. Not jealously, not aggressively, but in a way we wanted to share. I don't want my generation's defining feature to be collectively, bitterly not giving a shit. Or worse, chasing kids and girls away from the possibility of loving something. We're going through our 40s and our 50s now, and the blink of an eye will be in our 60s, and placed in the exact position of the boomer generation who disapproved of, admonished, blamed, harangued, and generally treated millennials like shit. Our being supportive starts with our fandoms, and while nostalgia can be like a warm blanket, it can also be a wall. Put simply, for Generation X, sarcastic, aimless slackers though we are, the bare minimum we can do is want good things for the kids. They're on the right lines by having a production company called Ghost Core, which I think most of us didn't really notice or, or pay that much attention to uh, during Answer the Call, but like that's clearly the label that's going to maintain the media presence of this moving forward. So I call this film a goodbye, but it's more a goodbye to the original Ghostbusters. We've been wanting to see them come back all of these years, and then they finally turn back up. It's like these old cowboys, and they are old as fuck. And it's like, this is what the Star Wars sequels would have been like if you had made them all about Han, Luke, and Leia. They are way too old for this shit. Like, we need kids to run away from TIE Fighters shouting, That one's garbage! We need that for it to be exciting. We need the energy, yeah. Because I think it's even one of the lines, I think I want to say it's Ray who goes, I don't remember this hurting so much. And Vaken going, yeah, it did. 
Yeah. <laughs> but that's the point. Yeah. And I think, I can't remember if it was Bill Murray said it, you don't want to see us running around in those suits. We're old now. And mm. yeah, they are. That moment you get in the film is fine, but a whole film of that would not have been fine. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Revolution is a young man's game. <laughs> As is Catching Ghosts. In a utilitarian sense. It's nice to see Dan Aykroyd is crazy as hell, but in he didn't go horrible right-wing crazy and start ranting about feminism. So, no, he's, uh, he's too busy about aliens and yeah. ghosts and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just that, carrying on as he's always that. been, oh, just and, balmy. And that's don't fine. forget his vodka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the purest, it's, it's distilled by diamonds. Um, one thing I really liked about this, and a lot of people wouldn't have caught it at the cinema if they didn't stay to the end, Ernie Hudson finally gets a little bit of time in the spotlight. Oh, he gets, he gets so... dignity. Egon was brains. Ray was the heart. Peter just kept it cool. Mm-hmm. Who are you? The sex appeal. <laughs> <laughs> You've done very well for yourself. A lot of shelf space. Well, see, that's the thing. I don't do it for me. I do it for my kids, and I want to be an example of what's possible. You still covering the rent at Ray's bookshop? Ray's going to turn a profit one of these days. <laughs> I remember the day you came in. I came in looking for a steady paycheck. But busting ghosts with the guys taught me not to be afraid. But I had the tools and I had the talent. I started this business with one employee, and I've grown it into a thriving global enterprise. I may be a businessman, but I will always be a Ghostbuster. He gets so much this this although they hide it after the credits, it's a mm. throwaway line in the main movie, but after the credits it's shown that he's actually gone on to be the most successful of them. Yeah. And I love that thing because everyone goes about, you know, Winston being a Ghostbuster. You watch those movies, he's not given anything to do most of the yeah. time. We lamented it repeatedly. There. He gets nudged out of a lot of scenes. And I think I've probably talked about it before, you know, they give him so much more in, in the comics and mm. in the real Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Ernie Hudson famously, uh, well, on our show, um, was the only one of the original Ghostbusters who uh, signed on to uh, voice his animated character and was told... Nah, we got Arsenio Hall, and uh, if we only have you, it'll make it very clear we don't have the others. And like, okay, cool, guess I'll just wander off. So this, like, little bit of extra, like, uh, Ernie Hudson has aged very gracefully and looks fantastic, and so he had that, that great little moment in that speech, and I love that bit of, that little coin bit with Janine and, and Egon, and managing to get a little deleted scene that had been cleaned up so much that it looked... It becomes, in the mind, something that actually did happen. Pop, popped at the end. Just definitely stick around for the end, folks. Because, yeah, now we're going to talk about Egon. He turns up at the beginning of this film as a shadowy figure who is running away from a pursuing force that's trying to clearly get something back off him and or kill him. He tries to trap it, fails hides the trap that contains one of the terror dogs to prevent the uh, coming of Gozo, at least stave it off for a few more years. And effectively, we then get to see a replication of Dana being snatched by Zul, only it's with Egon. And I figured there, was it trying to possess him so it could get hold of the uh, trap and his heart just gave out or something? 
because effectively he dies, and we're seeing a shadowy figure that we later learn as Harold Ramis, but I knew exactly what they were doing with this instinctually. Then there's that little moment after Zul leaves empty-handed, and you've got, you know, just this shadowy figure still in his chair, and then underneath the chair, the little PKE meter that he had been using, and had just buried the needle, flares back up again, and just that Elmer Bernstein score, which is prevalent throughout this film, almost too prevalent, uh, is just felt, and there's this, like, it begins the approach to how they're going to handle Egon in this, and it also just started making me well up, because the PKE meter is, for the first time, illustrating the passage from a living being to someone who exists without a body and registers as psychokinetic energy. And that just, it says so much and is so profound in just a little gadget going about a person who is in fact actually dead. Yeah, it made me cry so much because it was like oh that's Egon going and it just absolutely hit me and then I started I, I cried mm. I cried a lot bit I cried so hard I actually missed the PKE meter part oh so well I kind of picked up on what was happening a little bit later with the chess piece mm. I was like oh okay yeah for most of the rest of the movie Egon is technically in the background and you can feel him there he's invisible and he makes himself known through lights and lamps and chess pieces and he is effectively a major support character and the way they handle it in the same way that Gozer in this is played by Olivia Wilde and Emma Portner who does the dance moves and sort of moves her body in that crazy way. Olivia Wilde, by the way, directed uh, Booksmart and is a fantastic director there. But her amazing voice is provided by Shora Agdashlu, who I've mentioned before in the uh, third Star Trek movie um, that episode, has just got this incredible gravelly female voice and so she just, like, she does Gozer better than Gozer was ever done like that before. Fans of the TV show The Expanse will immediately recognize this Iranian actress. She is fantastic. When I first came here, my husband and I established our own theater company. A friend of mine who was active in Hollywood told me that I'm wasting my time like that and I should uh, join Hollywood. So he found me a great uh, uh, agent and every time I went to the audition, I realized that I'm in the wrong place, that this is a one-liner for, for someone who would like to do extra work, but not a full-dimensional character that I can put my teeth in it. Even when I was offered a, a terrorist role, the terrorist role was so short that I didn't know, just one, one, one or two words, I kill you, I kill you. I didn't know what to do with this sentence, you know, I kill you, I kill you. So thank God she finally found work in TV that wasn't just for racists. Anyway, here she plays Goza's spine-tingling voice. This is a composite character made up of different people's invested talents. Much the same way as the Mandalorian, uh, Mando himself, is a, a composite of various different body actors and voice actors and head actor. It's a different way of rendering a character, and in this case, to realise Egon on our screens. They largely employed puppetry, 
uh, careful CG tweakery and photo mapping and things, and just your own imagination fills in a lot of the gaps. You are complicit in summoning Egon yeah. in this film. It, it almost feels, particularly for me, the scene where Phoebe is trying to do the repairs in the workshop, mm. it almost felt like they'd actually hired the spirit of Harold Remis to come and move the lamp. <laughs> it was like, I could, I could like, on the periphery of my brain, I could almost see him there. Yeah. And all of this comes to a point at the end when you find out that this dirt farm, that the town had been baffled that Egon was working there for so long. By the way, practical effects here... They found this old barn that had had its roof bowed in to almost a horseshoe shape from the weight of snows. Uh, but it was in the wrong place, the wrong location. And I was like, well, that, this is easy. You just make one of those that's safe because this thing looks like it's about to fucking collapse uh, and you you know film there in your safe area but they in fact bought the barn moved the whole thing to their location and rebuilt it and I'm hoping put safety struts in there or something one hopes but yeah that the uh, Egon is characterized by his solitude and his silence there is not a single word ever uttered by this Egon who is in either in shadow or invisible for almost the entire time. And then at the end, when Phoebe faces off against Goza because the uh, original Ghostbusters have gotten their asses handed to them, they bring in the spectral form of Harold Ramis. And for several of these shots, we only found this out today, that is in fact Ivan Reitman that they've then added Harold's face to. And they had to use references because they had no mould for him. It's a it's a different actor playing him when they actually do the, the face mapping. Mm -hmm. Ivan Reitman played him in the shots where you just see his chest and his hands. Yeah. Jason must have known his father was on the way out. And this... You don't get to see this very often. Such a... A tenderness for people who have... A tenderness for people who have passed on. I'm going to... So the big question is that we've seen several attempts at something like this over the years in two very distinct and different branching contexts, one of which appears to be uh, a little more pronounced than the other coming from one particular direction. There is the case of a director needing to finish their film when a star has passed on during filming and to do this they use body doubles and editing and visual trickery as seen in the Bruce Lee film begun by Bruce Lee but definitely not finished by him Game of Death Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space with Bella Lugosi The Crow with Brandon Lee Gladiator with Oliver Reed The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus with Heath Ledger who turns into Johnny Depp. I mean, what a fucking trade down. And most famously in the extremely successful Fast and Furious 7. Fast and Furious 7 is powered by this same sense of he's not actually here, but he is here. And, you know, for obviously with Fast and Furious 7, him dying halfway through filmmaking means that they had a lot of Paul Walker that they could use, as opposed to what they have here, which is really none of Harold Ramis, or very little. They've got file footage and they've got reference that they can mimic. But then there's the other branch, and that is what Disney have been doing with Star Wars. Notably, an idea that George Lucas wanted to implement in the late 90s for the Star Wars prequel. So we can't just blame Disney. This idea has been around for a while. 
which is to not cast a new actor in a classical role, but instead have a physical double and use digital tech in order to render a semi-convincing face for someone who has either passed on, as in originally he was going to do this with uh, Alec Guinness, who at the time was still alive. He was going to de-age his face and paste it onto a younger actor and effectively have him be a younger Obi-Wan. But the technology just wasn't there. But it was there, in heavy inverted commas, in 2016, same rotten year, with Peter Cushing's Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One, or someone who's perhaps grown very old, as with Carrie Fisher at the end of that same film, and most recently with an algorithmically generated Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. Why is this different to those two things? Because it comes from a completely different place, I think. It comes with um, a lot of heart. They, they, there is a video on Adam Savage's Tesla channel which actually deals with this and how they did it and, and how much care and they didn't want to do it unless they could get it right and the team that did it instead of just you know just going off this movie apparently what they did was they took the original Ghostbusters took him out and put in the CG one and kept working on it and working on it and working on it until you couldn't tell and this feels real but also I wonder from a story point of view is it helped along by the fact that Egon is a a spirit so there should be some you're already accepting that there should perhaps be a little offness mm. to him mm. so by going oh he's, he's a ghost so it should look a little not quite right and because he doesn't speak you don't then have that extra layer of the voice maybe doesn't sound quite right they they can't line up the facial movements with the speech perfectly so they they managed to keep the uncanny valley elements just the right side i actually now that i think about it i have actually seen some equivalent to this uh and that is in cars three they used old file footage that uh paul newman had recorded with them in the 2005 sessions when he recorded for doc hudson in the original cars he then subsequently died and they used bits that he hadn't said in there for flashback section with him and lightning so lightning is remembering him and they're effectively giving us paul newman again as a car but it's the same sort of principle. I do think, though, you're absolutely right about the, the, the place that it comes from, Taylor, that there is a huge difference when it's something that effectively the team are doing with the greatest of respect, the greatest of care, with the, the person who they are recreating, as in the actor that they are recreating, in their thoughts all the time, and this being a way that they get to say goodbye to them, where they may not have been able to do before. Mm. That is completely different to, well, Carrie Fisher's old, we want somebody young and smooth-faced, so... Um, we don't want to have CG to sign someone to a contract and we don't want to be inconsistent. For the love of God, her daughter was right, right there. there. You'd already hired her. Yeah. That one yeah, just, just annoyed the piss out of me. But I, but I do remember. Rogue One smacked very much of because we because can. We, can. we want yeah. to be able to see that we can do this. Absolutely. Because it'll draw people to the cinema to be able to see this actor who's been dead for a long time 
I mean, the, the actual guy who was, the, they had the Tarkin face painted over mm. is a really good actor. He's yeah. the guy who's like, I'll stop you right there yeah. um, in, in extras. He's I, really good. And they, his name's Guy Henry. Great British actor. A lot of dignity. Like, we were still getting his performance mm. through the digital mask. It's yeah. effectively like the prosthetic makeup in Back to the Future. It's just that it's so fucking weird because we're looking at a video game. But that's the thing. I remember, in fact, I, I can't tell you exactly sort of date-wise when this was, but I do remember when they started talking about the technical processes of, of facial scanning and using that to create CG actions. It may even have been when Lucas was saying that he wanted to do it for the, the prequels. Mm -hmm. But I remember actors and various other people talking about how concerned they were about this technology and how it would be used. And that if they uh, took a role where they were being scanned for CG enhancements to their, their performance or something along those lines, do they then have the rights over that information or can the studio who now owns the technology to, to recreate their face, can they then make performances from them without their permission? Yeah, it's not just that. If you remember as well, I want to say, was it Elliot Page did the thing for Quantic Dream mm -hmm. and they took advantage, yes. shall we say. Yes. That's also... Ugh. The the thing about um, the recent Hamill one, though, that really uh, sort of dropped into the uncanny, I, I don't know whether you've seen this episode uh, at the uh, tail end of the Boba Fett uh, show, um, Taylor, but the Luke that we see there does say some things, uh, but never really on camera. There's a lot of, like... Uh, you'll see Luke's face looking very, very seriously at Grogu, and then you'll cut to behind Luke, and he'll say something. It's like, well, that's definitely Mark Hamill. And you think, well, maybe Mark Hamill has softened his voice down, drank a lot of peach juice, and, and sort of provided the voice. Then you find out that voice was provided by an algorithmic program that takes consonants and sounds from early Mark Hamill performances and turns them into a speech program. Quite a, Some voice actors are now doing this, wherein you can, rather than you hiring them, they send you a, a, a USB stick, much like podcast, with their representative. These are all the sounds that I can make. Jigsaw them together, and then you have me, Frank Welker, as your, uh, as your voiceover guy. That feels dirty to me. Especially because, like, if you've seen it, Sebastian Stan is a dead ringer for a young Luke. That's what I've been saying since I saw him master Luke Skywalker as the great Jedi warrior apparently all of us wanted to see, kicking wholesale robot ass at the end of uh, Mando season two. I was like, wow. Like, so they really took it to heart that, they, that people wanted to see Luke just being a really good lightsaber fighter and that's the thing he's best at. And then he was, and then he takes off his uh, cloak, and it's not even a guy; it's a it's a robot. And mm. that's the loop they want. Okay. So at the end of Mando season two, after being told you're his clan now, you got to take care of him. At the end of season one, you're then told he's a dangerous force user now. You got to give him to a Jedi, which he does. And then a couple of episodes of the Book of Boba Fett, he just picks him back up again, and off they go. As though the entirety of Mando Season 2 didn't mean anything. Grogu was best with Mando. 
It's almost like gratuitous cameos take precedence over character development. Even if that gratuitous cameo is just the video game version of Luke Skywalker from Star Wars Battlefront 2, and he can't really open his mouth because then you'll see his digital teeth, and you'll realize that this glassy-eyed gonk is a thousand times more terrifying than that first pass on movie Sonic, and when you try to go to sleep at night, all you'll see is those pretend teeth and that mouth hole that leads nowhere. And you won't be able to close your eyes because you'll be afraid those teeth will be on you. No face skin, just the teeth and the eyeballs floating in space with no soul behind them. Drawing it all the way back to Egon, I think it really helps that they didn't just use this model the whole way through. They characterize him repeatedly in other ways. The best kind of uh, visual effects tricks are ones where just before your audience works out how you're doing a thing, you then do it in a different way that defies what they were about to assume. So they go, oh, it can't be that then. And then you spin them around so many times that they stop wondering how you did the trick and they just engage with the film. Yeah. That's truly brilliant filmmaking. And I, obviously I wasn't like, how did they make that lamp move? But I was just, that's Egon. Yeah. And the strange thing is, how did they make that lamp move? It's literally a guy's hand yeah. to get the comedy timing because that's the important thing with the lamp. It is Egon, but it has his comedy because Egon was funny. Mm. Not Bill Murray funny, but he was funny. I don't and know, man. So, I quote to him maybe more than Venkman now. <laughs> true. But the whole point of like when Phoebe goes, how did you do all this? And he just, the lamp just swings over to the thing. He goes, okay, I get it. You're a genius. <laughs> or when Callie goes down and finds it and he's, it's, a, it's a different delivery of a movement of a lamp, but it's mm. a softer... Yeah, Callie uh, reconciling with her father, the... Uh, there was a deleted scene where Janine says, you know, is, is it ever too late? And she's actually referring to, you know, just being able to reconcile. And uh, it's, a, it's a question that leaves itself unanswered. And at the end, the very end, when she embraces her father, it's, it's answered. And I really wish they'd left that bit in. Mm, yeah. One thing I really appreciated about that end part was the lack of of Egon having to say anything. Yeah. The the level of subtle detail that they have on this character model is such that there's there are moments when he looks at Callie and his expression says I'm sorry and that is very very clear mm. and then he looks at Phoebe and his expression says I'm so proud of you and he never has to say a word it's just really I wouldn't even say obvious, it's not that kind of thing. It's just, it's there. It's on his face, it's in his eyes. Mm. And, and how you do that with something which is computer generated is care, attention, awareness of who you're recreating and mm. why you're recreating them. This is, I think, the best application of this kind of technology that I've seen. And it's for a very special reason. And the fact that they... They don't just have him show up at the end for a cameo. Like I said, he is a supporting role the whole way through. The entire film and everyone's emotional development is predicated on the actions of Egon Spengler in life. Egon is a primary motivator, even through inaction. 
and we feel his presence there. What it made me feel at the end was him not speaking speaks of like a veil being between him and the living, which keeps the other side mysterious. And what I was saying before about questions we don't necessarily need answered or put directly in, like we don't necessarily need all of this stuff quantified. It made me think that there was a whole other film taking place just for Egon on the other side. And he's effectively playing Sam in Ghost, another uh, uh, late, you know, from decades ago. He's playing Patrick Swayze's character, trying to reach out to this family that he lost. And by the end, he succeeds. And it's this victorious Unchained Melodies moment. He succeeds in, in, in not only reaching his family, but making amends with his, his friends as well, because that's the other thing. Yeah. We learned that he kind of screwed over his friends. For a good reason, it turns out. The end of the world being a very, very good reason. He but- took all their equipment and, uh, and drove out to uh, the boondocks. And I, I was wondering, like looking at it, did he really need all of their overalls? I mean, obviously, it's helpful to have them around because it means all these kids get you know, different overalls to wear rather than all being Spengler. So, you know, Phoebe's can be significant. But then I realized that even though he was terrible at expressing this because of the way his brain worked, works, he wanted his friends to follow him. There's one moment in one episode of the real Ghostbusters cartoon from the 80s, and I cannot for the life of me remember which episode it is so I can find it for you. It was simply a bittersweet ending of finding closure for both the dead and the living, and Egon explaining to us kids he dispersed peacefully. So Afterlife may have been a 100-minute parade of references to the original 1984 film, which in its own way is a worrying placation of certain very demanding fans' ridiculous overreaction to the 2016 film. And this, along with quite a few things happening on the Star Wars end, is cause for concern as the past becomes enshrined in amber. But at least for me, this finale resonated in just the right way. It allowed me to say goodbye to a fixture of my childhood. And it made my own child, Willow, cry. In a way that they would have described as a little toddler as happy sad. So I think this is a case of shaky flight but sticking the landing. Which is better than the other way around. So eventually Gary's gonna... Oh, actually I left some openings here in the script Mad Lib style. Oh, fun! So I need the name of a store that will give us a lot of money to be included in the movie. Uh, Walmart. Walmart would. Fantastic. And then the name of a product that will give us a lot of money to be included in the movie. Uh, Baskin Robbins ice cream. Okay, okay, so Gary goes to Walmart to buy some Baskin Robbins ice cream. No, product placement Mad Libs is tight. It's very fun, sir. So while he's there, he sees these mini Stay Puft 
stuffed marshmallows come to life, because that's a thing from the original Ghostbusters. Right, but didn't the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man come to life because Gozer took the form of something Ray was thinking about? Yeah, but baby versions of iconic characters are very good merchandising opportunities. That's a good point. Please carry on. So they all do a bunch of wacky stuff around this Walmart, right? They even cook each other on the barbecues they have there. Oh, God. Then the ghost of Egon Spengler shows up, and we'll kind of digitally recreate Harold Ramis since he passed away in real life. Oh. But very tastefully. Tastefully, yeah, of course. Extremely tastefully. Of course. Like it's like a, like a tribute. Of course. Of course. And then, you know, while we're treading into these waters, maybe we sell an action figure of Egon Spengler as a ghost. Oh. Yeah, maybe we also sell some toys of this digital recreation of a deceased actor that we've made. You know, maybe a bit of toy money comes our way. As a tribute. Uh-huh. Maybe. And, you know, maybe the tagline on the box says, the family that busts together. You know, as a tribute. But like tastefully? Tastefully, of course. Okay, then yeah, let's definitely cash in. Yeah, okay. Amazing. And so that's about it. What do you think? Well, it sounds like a movie made for the fans, you know, and a nice farewell to the Ghostbusters franchise. Of course. But we could set up some sequels, though. Oh yeah, let's do that. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us each month. And our $15 top tier get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Next week, we will be getting all hairy with the obscure werewolf fable, which is also a blunt, bloody metaphor for the passage from girlhood to womanhood. And I goddamn know a bunch of you just went, ooh, ginger snaps? Better. The Company of Wolves. I believe it's on YouTube in its entirety, and I recommend everyone watch this. It's got some gruesome transformation scenes, and it is fascinating to watch. And the song we're going to end with is Haunted House, sung by McKenna Grace herself, Phoebe. That will about do it for Ghostbusters for now. Taylor, as I recall, you just recently celebrated your thousandth episode of Game Burst? Yeah, no, I haven't been on all 1,000. I have taken yeah. time off. Still, that's pretty amazing. 12 years. <sighs> Four years I've been doing just game burst, let alone, you know, cranky gamers and gaming unlimited. I've been around a while. Folks, uh, if you want uh, like a, a weekly dose of uh, what's, I mean, I'm assuming, but most recently you were talking about the, the Nintendo eShops going down and what the hell that yeah. entails. Yeah, we didn't do all that. We you know, obviously keep our eye on a lot of what's going on. We just recently had Chris O'Regan on to talk about preservation of your old systems that. and repairing systems. Check that out. Uh, you can find us on your podcasting app under Game Burst. 
Okay. And we will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And we're we're ready ready to believe believe you. You walk out the door, then you walk back in the second that's cold outside. And you see I've got something to give. And I'd give it to you a hundred times over Till you screwed me over just like the last time Saying it was the last time I paid the price staying alone in my room After what happened in June Thinking I really loved you And maybe I still do But I think you're honestly something I needed to lose No, it's not healthy, it doesn't help A ghost never leaves a haunted house It's not with me No, it's not healthy It doesn't help me But I do it anyways Looking at photos Reading the letters That you gave me I could never throw them out Cause a ghost never leaves a haunted house